Our reading this afternoon is from Luke 11, 14 through 23, and this is what Holy Scripture says. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger, then he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon. It's good to be with you. Uh, maybe you saw this uh, startling news. It was reported this week in the Babylon Bee. Uh, a dispute broke out between the three wise men. And uh, after presenting baby their gifts of uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, apparently Caspar, the wise man who brought myrrh, confronted the other two for breaking their agreed-upon spending limit for the gifts for baby Jesus. Now, uh, Balthazar, the wise man who brought gold, responded that he thought Mary would like gold, to which Caspar uh, shouted back, Of course she likes gold! Everyone likes gold! Uh, Melchior, who brought frankincense, uh, complained about getting shown up as well, but Caspar shot back. He said, hey, you, you went over budget as well. But all three uh, could agree the baby was very cute. Uh, I'm sorry, I just had to start off with a joke because we're talking about an exorcism today at Christmas. Uh, and uh, the two images... Uh, maybe don't go together in your mind. Maybe it's a bit jarring to think about uh, how, what does an exorcism have to do with Christmas? Well, uh, this time of year we usually focus on uh, good cheer and gifts and family. And uh, we don't think about such uncomfortable things. But I want to argue that this passage actually has everything to do with Christmas. And in fact, this passage very much summarizes the very meaning of Christmas. I almost entitled this sermon a Christmas exorcism story. But then I thought uh, maybe I shouldn't go there. I couldn't bring myself to do it. But it's true, this entire passage I think summarizes uh, the Christmas story. In fact, I think one verse, one verse, verse 14, gets to the heart <clears throat> of what we celebrate this time of year. Did you notice? Let me read that verse again. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. 
Now, I want to suggest that this mute man's story, this sparse little one verse, is the Christmas story. That it's our story. Now, this man was overcome by a demon. We don't know how long he was in this condition. All we know, he was unable to speak. Uh, He was incapable of communicating. He was uh, unable to help himself. What's clear is this man was imprisoned in this condition. And he was helpless without hope. And this is where the Christmas story begins, I would argue, that this man couldn't save our, himself. We can't save ourselves. That's where you have to begin to understand what the big deal is about the baby born in a manger. And yet the message we hear this time of year in all the movies and films and songs and blogs and things that we read online, what we hear is that our hope is found within us, that if we just try harder, if we're just uh, able to try better, maybe if we have better examples and mentors, better education, maybe if we're able to just uh, pass some certain legislation, that all the problems would be solved, that we have it within us to change our world, that we, you and I, are the hope that we celebrate at Christmas. I don't know if you heard or saw this controversial ad for the uh, Peloton. You know, Peloton is the stationary bike uh, that you buy and it has a screen and you can take a class in your home virtually. Uh, There's a a controversy on this this commercial of this young, beautiful, yuppie kind of couple and the husband buys a Peloton bike for the wife and the wife Um, catalogs in the ad her journey for the year of using the bike and at the end of it all she says it transformed my life and so the message being sold to us is that just for you know $2,500 and a, a low monthly fee our lives can be changed you know we can do it if we just try harder but of course that's an illusion isn't it Because once you get in shape, then what? Once you get that job, then what? Once you change that bad habit you have, then what? There's always something missing. There's always something. There's this hole within us that we can't fill. We can't solve on our own. And that's why the culture, our culture, will never understand the Christmas story. They'll never get it. Because the true Christmas story is brutally honest about our dire situation. That we have no hope unless we're rescued. And Jesus describes our situation with this short parable. In verse 21, uh, notice what Jesus says. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Now this strong man is described as being fully armed... He has his palace, his fortress, and his treasure is held there, and it's safe there. Now, Jesus here is describing Satan. He's describing the devil. Uh, The one responsible for the man's demon possession that is described in verse 14. And and, uh, Jesus' accusers, the religious leaders who are threatened by Jesus... They want to destroy Jesus. They accuse him of being an agent of Beelzebub there in verse 15. 
the prince of demons. Now that's a name, a derisive name. Um, it's kind of tough to, you know, to, for scholars to understand exactly where it comes from. They think it's derived from the old Canaanite god named Baal. And so they attribute Jesus' power there to the prince of demons. Now I wonder if it startled you, it startled me a little bit here that Jesus refers to Satan as a strong man. Even Jesus acknowledges the devil's power. Martin Luther, in his famous, famous hymn, he describes the, the strong man this way. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. The strong man's very powerful. He's capable of holding our world captive. And, and John Calvin put it this way, There's none stronger than he on earth, for men have not the power to help themselves. They hope in vain for liberation until Satan is conquered in a violent battle. So Jesus teaches us the strong man is a great threat. And he has this palace. Now, what is his palace? His palace is our world. It, it's it's our, us. It's the world that we live in. It's earth. And what, what are his goods, his treasure? Humanity. Men, women, boys, girls. We, we are the goods. We are the treasure that the strong man keeps safe. And so if we go back to verse 14 to the exorcism there, I contend that this man's story is an illustration of the captivity all of humanity experiences living in a fallen world. In that one verse, it's all summed up right there. Now, we may not be possessed. We may not have demons possessing us. However, the strong man doesn't have to possess us in order to hold us captive. This man was mute, but he was more than a, just a sad story. He was more than just an unlucky individual. He represents all of us. He represents humanity. He, ramp, he represents our condition. And the, the strong man, we see as we read the scriptures, uses all types of methods to keep us captive. Sometimes it, it isn't so obvious as, as a mute demon possessing someone. Remember Paul's words uh, to the church in Ephesus. What does he say there in chapter 2, the beginning? He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the strong man. So Paul had in mind the devil... Uh, Satan, his strength, and his ability to keep us captive. Now, you don't have to be physically imprisoned to be a captive, and you don't have to be physically possessed to be led astray. We're all capable of being deceived. We're all capable of being blinded, misguided, and the, and the strong man can have his way with us without you having a clue that it's happening. Now notice what Jesus is teaching us here in this little parable, that according to Jesus, there are two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms. One kingdom 
is the palace of the strong man. That's the kingdom of this world. As we mentioned before. Now, before his crucifixion, while talking to Pilate, the Roman official, in John's gospel, Jesus makes this distinction between the two kingdoms. And talking to Pilate, he says this, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Notice Jesus is differentiating the two kingdoms. The strong man's palace and the kingdom of God. And if you recall when we talked about the Lord's Prayer, you remember, how does the Lord's Prayer start? Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So, friends, that's the Christmas story. Is the kingdom of God coming to earth in the form of a baby? God in human flesh. And, and Jesus' ministry here summarized in verse 14 with this exorcism of this demon-possessed man is that realization, is an illustration, is symbolic, is a reality of the kingdom of God coming. And what happens when the kingdom of God comes? People are freed. People are liberated. People have life in all its fullness. And Jesus describes that act of God there in verse 20, where he, he uses this phrase. He says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That phrase, the finger of God, is, is rarely used in Scripture. In fact, only two other times. Once in the Old Testament in reference to the, the Ten Commandments, being written on the stone tablets. Uh, the finger of God is described as writing those commandments on the stone tablets. But the other place it's, it's used is in Exodus 8 during the plagues. When the plagues uh, are unleashed upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, uh, the magicians say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Do you see the connections here? What Jesus is doing is he's connecting the liberating act of God's power unleashed in the Exodus with this simple act of exercising this demon in verse 14. As one commentator put it, Jesus' work is a divine painting etched by the finger of God and pointing to the one through whom the forces in heaven manifest themselves on earth. There is a collision happening in this story. The two kingdoms clashing. And Jesus gives us a clue of what the final result will be. He says there... In verse 22, when he goes on in this parable, after talking about the strong man and the palace and his goods being safe, he says, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Friends, this is exactly what the angels celebrated <laughs> When praising God over the shepherds on the night Jesus was born, they're celebrating this news. That this is 
what Christ came to accomplish. This very thing. Jesus predicts it in Luke 4 when he quotes Isaiah's prophecy. Do you remember that prophecy? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 14 in Luke 11 is the epitome of that very thing Jesus was talking about. Jesus setting the captive free. And I want you to see it's true for you too. It's true for you too. That's why Jesus came. That's why Christmas is such a big deal. Because Jesus came to liberate us. And, and the religious leaders here are almost comical in their accusations of Jesus, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's somewhat ridiculous. You kind of shake your head. They accuse him of working for Satan. <laughs> of working for Satan. And doesn't that happen so often that we... We misread and misunderstand the workings of God because he doesn't do things the way we want him to. And the religious leaders, are, they, they're lost in that. They don't see that. That the very finger of God is at work in, in, in the person of Jesus. And, and they're not able to see it. And I wonder, do you see it? Do you see it in your life? Do you see it in the lives of your friends, your family? Do you see it in the lives of people here at King's Church? Do you see it? I like how Daryl Bach puts it. He says, Jesus' work is different from Satan's labors. Whereas the devil destroys, the deliverer rescues. Whereas Satan debilitates life, Jesus enhances it. Whereas Satan cripples, Jesus liberates. Jesus shows how his work exalts Life, and where there is life, there is the kingdom of God at work. There are the signs of the kingdom of God at work. And that's what this story shows us is Jesus' authority and power realized in the life of this man. Jesus stormed into the devil's palace and he began seizing his goods, and lives were being transformed. And even to this day, through the good news of the gospel, that very thing is happening. Jesus continues his raiding work in the strong man's palace. When the gospel is proclaimed and when people's lives are changed and their eyes are opened and they realize who Jesus is and they give their life to him, they're is the finger of God at work. And Jesus ultimately accomplished this in his work on the cross when the powers of Satan were ultimately defeated and Jesus was raised from the dead. That is where the victory ultimately was accomplished. And this is the wonderful, glorious news of Christmas. This is what we celebrate. And yet... And yet, we look around at our world, don't we? And we see so much evidence of the strong man still active, still working, still taking captives. Today, USA Today Online, I read an article 
uh, from my, back where I'm from, in the Cincinnati area, uh, a journalist was writing about the heroin and prescription painkiller epidemic that is ravaging, I mean devastating, these small idyllic communities in that part of the country. Accidental overdosing deaths are outnumbering traffic fatalities. Uh, the national stats show 130 or more people are dying every day in the United States from overdosing nationwide. Is that not the strong man at work? Can we not look at that and say, my goodness, what is going on? Is that not a sign of our captivity? And does it not make you long for our liberator to come again? Don't you see that is what Advent is? If you feel that tension, then you get it. If you don't feel the tension, I would encourage you to spend some time reflecting. And that is what is so difficult about this time of year when we celebrate Christmas and we focus on the the wonderful news, and it is wonderful news, and we focus on the good cheer and the holly jolly sense of it, and we're not willing to look at the darkness that is still present. We, we still see the strong man at work. And I love how Tish Harrison Warren puts it. She, she's an Anglican priest, and she writes a piece for the New York Times, and she talks about this tension we experience as Christians. Jesus has come, he's defeated the strong man, and yet the strong man is still at work. We still see signs of his devastating work, of holding prisoners in his palace. But for Christians, we, we enter into this time of year and we're, we're confronted with that tension, celebrating the coming of light into the darkness and the person of Jesus Christ as a baby, and yet the devastating sadness and, and grief and mourning and devastation that we see every day. What do we do with that? And, and, I, and I love how uh, Warren puts it. She says, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache our deep, wordless desire for things to be made right. Do you feel that? Do you feel it? And, and she confronts us. She confronts our desire of escapism and ignoring the darkness and ignoring the pain and ignoring the signs of the strong man at work. She says we need both. She says we need collective space as a society, and I would put in there as a church, to grieve, to look long and hard at what is cracked and fractured in our world and in our lives. Only then can celebration become deep, rich, and resonant, not as a saccharine act of delusion, but as a defiant act of hope. See, we hope that Christ comes again to finalize his work to completely destroy the strong man and to establish the kingdom of God. You see, it is that day when the kingdom of God truly comes on earth 
as in heaven. That's our good news. That's what we hope for. And so what about you this Christmas? What, what are you longing for God to do? What are you longing for Jesus to do in your life? I, um, I'll end with this. I, I may have shared this. I, I don't remember. But um, this past year, I did some spiritual direction um, I was working with a spiritual, spiritual director and I was working through some things in my life where I felt captive, where I felt like I was longing for Jesus to liberate me, like the, the mute man. And my spiritual director had me sit at this couch and he asked me to imagine Jesus standing there in front of me and Jesus asking this question, Jason, what do you want me to do for you? Have you ever done that? Is there something in your life you really want Jesus to change? And have you ever stopped in a moment of quiet and imagined Jesus asking you, what do you want me to do for you? And to understand the power Jesus has to do it. I, in that moment, I almost couldn't face it. I couldn't face it. I, I almost couldn't even ask. Jesus. It was almost like that person who has been in prison for so long, they don't want to be freed because they don't because that's even scarier than the prison they're living in. You ever felt that? But that's what Jesus offers us. He offers you. And so I hope this Advent season you will spend some time asking him to come into your life, for him to do his work, for him to unleash his power. Because when he does, life, life is the result in all its fullness. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the good news of your coming. And what you accomplished in the life of this man, in our story, and the hope that that gives each and every person in this room. Jesus, we see ourselves as this mute man. We put ourselves in his place. And we long for you to heal us. And we celebrate the good news that you promised that you will. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. As we uh, prepare for the